Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to episode one of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This podcast is from our Mysteries series, and it's titled Gremlins, the World War II myth that became the movie. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. Many of you may remember the 1984 American horror comedy called Gremlins, produced by Steven Spielberg, directed by Joe Dante, and released by Warner Brothers. The film is about a young man who receives a strange creature called a mogwai as a pet, which then spawns other creatures who transform into small, destructive, evil monsters. The film stars Zach Galligan and Phoebe Cates, with Howie Mandel providing the voice of Gizmo, the main mogwai character. Gremlins was a huge commercial success. But what many of you may not know is that the gremlin myth goes back to World War II. They were first discovered by RAF pilots with the photographic reconnaissance units who flew unarmed spitfires and mosquitoes at great heights on photographic missions over enemy territory. Their presence caused great concern, so much so that an alert order was sent to all RAF units. It was in the form of verse, which was published in RAF bulletins and often sung to a familiar tune. It went like this. This is the tale of the gremlins, as told by the PRU. At Benson and Wick and St. Eval, and believe me, you slobs, it's true. When you're seven miles up in the heavens, that's a hell of a lonely spot. And it's 50 degrees below zero, which isn't exactly hot. When you're frozen blue like your spitfire and you're scared of mosquito pink. When you're thousands of miles from nowhere and there's nothing below but the drink. It's then that you'll see the gremlins. Green and gambage and gold, male and female and neuter, gremlins both young and old. It's no good trying to dodge them. The lessons you learnt on the link won't help you evade a gremlin, though you boost and you dive and you jink. White ones will wiggle your wingtips. Male ones will muddle your maps. Green ones will guzzle your glycol. Females will flutter your flaps. Pink ones will perch on your perspex. And dance pirouettes on your prop. There's a spherical middle-aged gremlin who will spin on your stick like a top. 
They'll freeze up your camera shutters. They'll bite through your aileron wires. They'll bend and they'll break and they'll batter. They'll insert toasting forks into your tires. And that is the tale of the gremlins, as told by the PRU. The following is a fascinating account of gremlins written by British reconnaissance pilot John Laming. It's titled Stories of Ten Squadron RAAF in Townsville. And this is his story. I first heard about gremlins when I was eight years old. That was in 1940, and the Battle of Britain was being fought over Kent. My old Uncle Alf told me about them. He picked up this info from an RAF pilot he met in our village pub. The pilot was recuperating from a crash caused by gremlins in the fuel system of his Spitfire. Gremlins were apparently a British manifestation, although, as we shall see later, there is evidence that some may have migrated to Australia after the war. Interestingly, they seemed to be peculiar to only British-designed aircraft as there were no reports of American gremlins causing problems. As I grew up and became a man in the RAAF, I cast such childish beliefs behind me. That is until one day on the tarmac at Townsville. It was in 1960, and I was serving with No. 10 Squadron as a Lincoln Pilot and Squadron Qualified Flying Instructor, QFI. In airline parlance of 1997, the job would be called by the grand title of Check and Training Captain. The Lincoln was larger and more powerful version of the wartime British Lancaster bomber. It was equipped with four Rolls-Royce Merlin liquid-cooled engines. And the Lincolns we flew had a stretched nose section housing radio operators who listened out for foreign submarines. In those days, it was a case to first find your pink submarine. Once you located it by spotting its periscope, our radar was useless over five miles, the next move was to drop listening devices called sonoboys near the submarine and try to gauge his course under the sea. By this time, of course, the sub had crash-dived, so we would then let fly with a very expensive acoustic homing torpedo in an attempt to ruin his day. The latest Russian submarines were even reputed to outrun our torpedoes. As with most multi-engined aircraft, the Lincoln had fully feathering propellers to minimize drag from a failed engine and there were four feathering buttons on the instrument panel, each one for each engine. During the ground test before takeoff, each button would be pressed momentarily to ensure the system was operating. Once the propeller began to slow down, indicating correct feathering, the pilot would cancel the test by resetting the button. The propeller would increase revs again, and the test was then repeated for the remaining engine. The whole procedure took about 15 seconds. One morning, I was approached by an engine fitter who claimed that, during an engine run, after a periodic inspection, he had pressed the feathering button on one of the four Rolls-Royce Merlins to test the serviceability of its feathering system, and that the propellers on all engines had immediately feathered. If that was true, the ramifications were frightening. It meant that if an engine failed in flight, and the pilot had to feather the propeller, there was a possibility that a latent electrical fault could cause all four engines to stop from the push of one button. This gremlin was indeed a dangerous creature of which we had no previous knowledge in Australia. I thought the engine filter was having me on until he bet me ten quid he could reproduce the fault. We walked to the flight lines where the Lincoln was waiting, and I could hear slight clicking noises coming from under the engine cowls as the engines cooled down from their previous test runs. There was the usual smell of hot glycol, and heat waves shimmered from the top of the silver engine cowls. The shocks were in place. We climbed up the ladder leading to the nose escape hatch, the main crew entrance. The huge diesel external power cart belched black smoke as the engine fitter started first the starboard inner engine called number three. 
then the starboard outer, followed by the two engines on the port side. With the four Merlins now idling at 1500 RPM, we received the all clear behind to increase power for the feathering check. The engine's fitter then tested the feathering system of each engine in turn by momentarily pressing its feathering button, noting the RPM drop, then resetting the button. So far, there was nothing abnormal. He then told me to select any feather button and press it. But with the proviso that once feathering had started, the button should be reset to within 3 millimeters of the normal position. I selected the feathering button for the port-outboard engine and pushed it in. The propeller started to feather normally. After the reset, with the propeller now returning to unfeather, I gently depressed the button again just a fraction, as the fitter had said. Nothing happened. I looked at him and said, What next? He told me then to feather any one of the other engines. I closed my eyes and pressed a button. To my astonishment, the propellers on all four engines rapidly went to feather. That's ten quid, please, said the fitter. We then tried various combinations of button pushing to try and reproduce the fault, and occasionally succeeded. The feathering buttons were protected from inadvertent bumping by a metal cage surrounding the feathering panel. Each button had an integral fire warning light, which could be dimmed at night by a small metal sliding bar situated on the top of the button. Experimenting, we found that if the dimmer bar could be positioned to make contact with the protective cage, it was sometimes possible to feather all four engines with one button. We couldn't produce the fault on any of the other Lincolns. Clearly, there was a gremlin at large in the feathering system of the first Lincoln. Or were there others lying dormant, only to wreak havoc on a dark night? Meanwhile, I was down ten quid, so I visited the commanding officer and suggested that for twenty sterling, I could kill four engines with a single blow. He was about to call for those nice young men in clean white suits to come and take me away, until he realized maybe I was serious. After I had explained what I had seen, he accompanied me to the Lincoln for a demonstration. To our chagrin, neither the engine fitter or myself could reproduce the fault. We did manage, however, a lovely conflagration from the 12 open exhaust stubs of the port inner due to my over-priming the already hot engine. As the CO was standing in the cockpit only 10 feet from the flames, he got quite jumpy and was about to abandon ship via the nose hatch when the engine finally started and blew out the fire. The engine fitter was having one final fiddle with the feathering button when a rapid noise decrease in the engines revealed all RPM decreasing rapidly. I hurriedly pocketed the 20 notes and the CO disappeared into his castle to call a hasty conference with his engineering officer. Weeks later, while the investigation into the mysterious featherings was still being carried out, serious corrosion was discovered in the main wing spars of the RAAF Lincoln fleet. The decision was made to ground them all. Most were eventually sold for scrap metal, while others were destined for fire crew practice. The investigation was canceled, and as far as I was concerned, that was the end of the story. Or was it? Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. 
Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. In April 1996, 35 years after the Lincolns were grounded, I was browsing through the Sydney Bulletin while waiting to get a haircut. In it was a story of the sole survivor of a wartime Lancaster crash in 1942. Recounting his experience, he said, It was a low-level night flight into Germany, but a problem developed over northern France. For some reason, one engine stopped. The pilot told the engineer to feather it. He pressed the button to feather this particular motor, and all four engines feathered off the one button. It left us with nothing but a full bomb load and plenty of petrol, so we just went down. I bailed out to the front hatch. The plane went over a small hill and blew up. Later, I contacted the survivor, Mr. Chris Jarrett, who lives in an NSW country town. He told me that the magazine story was true. Four days before the fatal flight, the Lancaster had belly landed and had sustained some damage to the bomb bay. After repairs, the Lancaster went on a bombing raid, but several bombs failed to release. Obviously, there was an electrical fault, and Jarrett thought that the feathering of all four engines on his flight may have been due to a wiring fault caused during the repair work in the Bombay area. A few months after talking to the Lancaster survivor, I read a book called Flight of the Fairfax. The Halifax was another RAF wartime bomber by a Captain Joff Wickner, who flew 67 types of aircraft as a ferry pilot during the war. On page 144, I was stunned to read this description of a ferry flight that Captain Wickner did in a Lancaster. Quote, on 3rd of August, 1944, I had a chit to deliver Lancaster number 13, a number I've never forgotten, from Strathaven to Scrampton with 1st Engineer Gillespie. His duties entailed instrument checks, changing petrol tanks, and ensuring the air screws would feather and unfeather when required to do so. On occasions, the switch controlling the feathering of each engine would stick, allowing the particular engine to overrun its maximum revs. To correct the problem, the engineer would have to place two fingers under the feathering button and pull it out at the right revolutions. He also had to be ready to feather a propeller on any engine that cut on takeoff. Everything went smoothly during the early part of the flight. With a clear sky and good visibility, I thought it was a good time to test the engineer on the feathering routine. We were cruising at 3,000 feet and nearing our destination. Number four starboard air screw was feathered according to procedure. Number one and two motor revs were then increased to 2,600 RPM and plus seven pounds boost. Number three air screw was feathered correctly with the aircraft trimmed with maximum bias to port. We were now flying on two engines. In one minute, I gave Gillespie instructions to unfeather number three air screw and watched him carefully. He turned on the fuel master cocks and placed his thumb on the number three button and pressed. I was watching the revolution counter when I felt a sudden swing to port. I looked out to see both air screws feather and stop. Number three unfeathered, but the motor didn't fire. Gillespie then unfeathered number four. The motor ran for a short period and finally cut out with a loud explosion, as though short of fuel. While this was happening, number three feathered itself with the result there were no engines functioning, and I had control of an overgrown glider of about 30 tons. The wind was whistling around the aircraft, and then the rudders were inefficient. I unfeathered number one and two air screws that instructed Gillespie to put on the fuel booster pumps and change tanks. While this was happening, I think Gillespie was endeavoring to get number three unfeathered again, and then number one feathered itself. 
During all the motor juggling, I had difficulty in maintaining a straight course, having to spin the rudder bias to one side or the other to meet the altering directions. I finally got number one unfeathered and running. This gave me two more motors operating on the port side and two dead windmilling motors on the starboard. Skellingthorpe Aerodrome was within approach distance, so I decided to leave the air screws as they were fearing they might all feather again and went in for a landing. I approached a little high and fast and swish-tailed the aircraft in an attempt to reduce speed and finally made a three-point landing without overshooting. When I finished my landing run, all four engines were ticking over. I taxied to the watch office where I tested each engine with perfect results. Later, the ground staff carried out the same feathering procedure as we had in the air, but found no defect. The aircraft was placed under armed guard, and a test pilot from A.V. Rowe, the manufacturer, was sent to finish the delivery. On hearing that good piece of news, I said that I didn't care if J.C. himself wants to fly the plane, but I'm not. I never heard what caused the trouble, so I guessed it was hushed up. After my episode, I learned that four Lancasters had crashed at different times, and all the crews killed. Investigators found the air screws in the feathered position. As the reader, I returned the book to the library from which I had borrowed it, and while there, picked up a copy of Flight International. There was an article about the only flyable Lancaster in the world operated by the IRF Battle of Britain Memorial Flight at Coningsby in Lincolnshire. I began to wonder about the gremlins who once lived in the feathering systems of the Avro Lincolns and Avro Lancasters. I knew both types came from the same manufacturer in England, with the Lincolns I once flew built under license in Melbourne. Surely these gremlins were long since dead and buried. After all, it was more than half a century since these deadly creatures first surfaced England, and 35 years since my own encounter with one at Townsville. I decided to write to the commanding officer of the Battle of Britain flight about my experience with the feathering of all four engines in the Lincoln back in 1960. I felt I should warn him that, to my knowledge, the mystery was never solved. As his machine was the last surviving Lancaster, perhaps he should look closely behind the dashboard. I enclosed the story of the sole survivor of the wartime Lancaster crash, plus the extract from Captain Wickner's book on his experience in Lancaster No. 13. I decided not to mention my suspicions about gremlins. He wouldn't believe me anyway, because he was too young to know about such things. Anyway, I feared he too might call for the nice young men in the clean white coats to come and take me away. On the 7th of August, 1996, I received the following letter addressed to Squadron Leader John Laming. Dear Squadron Leader, thank you for your letter of 24 July about feathering of the Lancaster engines. Squadron Leader Paul Day, OC, BBMF, has passed the letter to me for response. I thought I would let you know that we had received your letter because it will take some time to get to the comments from my engine and electrical trade managers, as well as our air crew, some of whom are from other units. In the meantime, I'm sending you a copy of our 1996 brochure. Thank you for your interest, and I will write again in a week or so. Yours faithfully, L. Sutton. It is now more than six months since that letter arrived, and I've heard nothing since. But wait a minute. There's an ambulance outside my house, and some nice young men in clean white coats are coming through the gate. Then our story continues. Another British pilot, Ronald Dale, is credited with getting the gremlins known outside of the Air Force. He would have been familiar with the myth, having carried out his military service in the 80th Squadron of the Royal Air Force in the Middle East. Dale had had his own experience in an accidental crash landing in the Libyan desert. In January of 42, he was transferred to Washington, D.C. as an assistant air attaché. There he eventually authored his novel, The Gremlins, in which he described baby gremlins as widgets and females as fifinellas. Widgets have no gender until they're teens, at which point they become either male or female. Only about one in ten become fifinellas. 
Dale showed the finished manuscript to Sidney Bernstein, the head of the British Information Service. Sidney reportedly came up with the idea and sent it to Walt Disney. The manuscript arrived in Disney's hands in July of 42, and he considered using it as material for a film. The film project never materialized, but Disney managed to have the story published in the December 1942 issue of Cosmopolitan magazine. About half a year later, a revised version of the story was published in a picture book published by Random House. The book was republished in 2006 by Dark Horse Comics. Thanks mainly to Disney, the story had a share of publicity which helped in introducing the concept to a wider audience. Issues 33 to 41 of Walt Disney's Comics and Stories, published between June 43 and Feb 44, contained a nine-episode series of short, silent stories featuring a gremlin Gus as their star. The first was drawn by Vivie Rusto and the rest of them by Walt Kelly. This served as their introduction to the comic book audience. While Ronald Dale was famous for making the gremlins known worldwide, many returning air servicemen swear they saw creatures tinkering with their equipment. One crewman swore he saw one before an engine malfunction that caused his B-25 Mitchell bomber to rapidly lose altitude, forcing the aircraft to return to base. Critics of this idea state that the stress of combat and the dizzying heights caused such hallucinations, often believed to be a coping mechanism of the mind to help explain the many problems aircraft faced while in combat. Here are some other places where gremlins have been spotted. In 1943, Robert Clampett created his Bugs Bunny film, Falling Hair, H-A-R-E. With Disney's film being the inspiration, this short has been one of the early gremlin stories shown to cinema audiences. It features Bugs Bunny in conflict with a gremlin at an airfield. The Bugs Bunny cartoon was followed in 44 by Russian Rhapsody, another short showing Russian gremlins sabotaging an aircraft piloted by Adolf Hitler. In a 1963 episode of The Twilight Zone, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, directed by Richard Donner. A gremlin was featured attacking a plane. This episode was remade as a segment of 1983's Twilight Zone, the movie. In the original television episode, the gremlin appears as an almost ape-like creature which inspects the aircraft's wing with the curiosity of an animal and then proceeds to damage the wing. In the movie segment, the gremlin more resembles a troll or a goblin with green skin and a frightening grin. This incarnation of the gremlin appears to be more intellectual and menacing. It's also shown to be capable of flying. Gremlins also appear in the Dungeons & Dragons role-playing game system as diminutive humanoid monsters with varying degrees of motivation to cause mayhem and mischief. We hope you enjoyed a trouble-free episode of Gremlins without any unexpected system failures. For more myths, legends, histories, and mysteries, check out our website at 1001storiespodcast.com. We'll see you next time.